One of the things that I really enjoy about Bible study, about preparing to teach or preach, is when the passage that I'm working on contains a coffee mug verse. You know what I'm talking about? A coffee mug verse. A a verse that, that warms your heart much in the same way that the coffee in the mug warms your body. But when you come across some of these coffee mug verses in their original context, sometimes that sheds a whole new light on the verse that you've got there on your mug. Maybe how we view that one little verse that's been lifted out of its context, maybe that changes for us when we plug it back into the chapter that it came out of. Probably the most famous coffee mug verse of all time. Is also probably the most famous t-shirt verse, which is a closely related category, uh, is Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But did you know, interesting little tidbit here, that verse, which I think is on the next slide, yep, it's not actually about sports, 0.0001% related to sports. Um, And so when you study that verse in its original context, it really gives that verse a whole new meaning. Yes, you can do all things through Christ. It's just that winning that baseball game may or may not be the thing that you're going to do. It might be that the thing that you can do through Christ is glorify him in defeat. But that's another sermon for another time. Our coffee mug verse for today is 1 Peter 5, 7. Definitely a heartwarming verse. Uh, I remember it being one of the very first verses that I memorized, um, gosh, I guess almost 30 years ago. I used the little navigator's topical memory system. had all these little cards, smaller than business cards, in a little brown plastic envelope that you could keep in your pocket. And this was one of the two verses, there were like uh, two verses for each of 30 different topics, so 60 verses total. And this was one of the two verses on um, experiencing or relying on the peace of God. 1 Peter 5, 7, I memorized it in the NIV back in the day, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And that is a wonderful promise regarding God's care, the peace that should result from that. And admittedly, I don't think that this coffee mug verse is prone to quite the abuse or misconstrual that maybe Philippians 4.13 or some others are. This verse, as it is tied directly to God's character, it, it seems to stand alone a little bit better, I think. But what I found interesting here with this coffee mug verse in the original context is that we find a root cause for the anxieties that need to be cast on the Lord in the first place. The the, the broader context of this verse is that there is something that can lead us to be anxious, and when that happens, we need to cry out to the Lord for His help, for His grace. 
And I think the, the link here, the, the root cause that's beneath some of our anxiety, it's, it's surprising. It was to me, at least. You can let me know what you think after we dig into these verses together. Three verses this morning. Stand, if you're able, for their reading. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you help us this morning? Would you help us? We, we want to understand your word rightly. All of it. Whatever verse we may come to. Whatever verse we may have on our t-shirt or our coffee mug. We want to understand it rightly. Because you're speaking to us through that verse. They're your words. They're your voice. And with the Holy Spirit's help, we want to get it right. Because we know that we'll benefit from hearing you in your word. We know that we'll be changed by encountering your voice in your word. So would you help us to do that this morning? To hear you as you speak. And to be changed as we hear you speak. Would you do this for our good and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, I've been trying to do a little better job of not biting off more than I can chew with these verses, right? So, we just had four verses last week, only three verses this week, because they're dense. They are just packed full of goodness. Now, the downside of that approach, when we split it up like that, it's a little bit more difficult to see the big picture and to see the connectedness of all of those verses when I keep dissecting them. But if you just look at the first word in our three-verse passage today, it serves as a good reminder. These are connected. This all flows together. Verse 5 begins, Likewise. Which ought to prompt the question, like what? What have these three verses to do with something else? Well, these three verses are like what we saw in the preceding verses. So last week, verses 1 through 4, Peter's exhortation to the elders about how they are to shepherd the flock of God. And I told you last week, I think it's pretty reasonable to infer that if we've got instruction to the shepherds, we can also deduce and infer some instruction to those that the shepherds are leading, to the flock that they are tending. It's not a big logical leap to make. Well, this week we get that reasonable inference spelled out for us. Here are the specific instructions There is to be subjection, submission to those elders who are doing the shepherding. The flock should be subject. It says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, some spend a lot of time on exactly what Peter is talking about when he says, you who are younger. 
Is this an age thing that he's talking about? Uh, the, the young whippersnappers ought to be uh, respectful of their senior citizen uh, counterparts in their midst. From the overall context, no. This doesn't seem to be about age. Last week's verses really didn't give us the impression that Peter was concerned about age when he addresses elders and called himself one. It definitely seemed like he was talking to specific leaders in the church serving in a, a specific role or, or function. Shepherds, right, who were themselves going to be responsible to the chief shepherd. Um, so if what we see in these verses this week is likewise, right, similarly related, then I think it's pretty safe to assume that age is not the main point here. And, and, and the simplest way to read this, which is usually the best way to read Scripture, we had instructions to elders. That came first about their leadership. Now we have instruction to those that they lead about their followership, their subjection. The instruction here to those being led is very brief. It's one point, be subject. Submit yourselves to the leadership of your shepherds. Which, if those shepherds were heeding Peter's instruction from last week, right? Uh, remember, uh, they were doing it willingly. They were eager to serve. They weren't domineering, but they were setting an example. Well, uh, if they were doing that, then that ought to be a no-brainer for the sheep to follow that kind of leadership. Now, now it's not a no-brainer. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but it ought to be a no-brainer. Uh, so instruction to the flock, very brief, one point, be subject. But that's not all that Peter has to say. What he adds, however, is for everybody, elders included. Shepherds and flock alike, he continues in verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And this is a great picture here of putting on clothing. We see it a lot in, in the scriptures, frequently repeated. But this particular verb here, to clothe, gets even more specific, even stronger in the image that it invokes. It's, it's the word for tying on a piece of clothing like an apron, like the, the apron-like garment that a herdsman or a slave would tie around their tunic to keep it from getting messed up in their duties. So two things here Peter is exhorting in verse 5. And they don't come out of the blue. He's been talking about this this whole letter. He's talked a lot about submission to God, to one another, to civil authorities, uh, slaves and servants submitting to their masters, right? Even the bad ones. Um, wives submitting to their husbands, even the bad ones. Um, so there's been lots of, of submission here. And Peter's adding the similar exhortation here of humility. Neither of these things, if we're honest, is easy. Neither of these things comes naturally to sinful, fallen us. Of this subjection, Calvin said, Nothing is more adverse to the disposition of man than subjection. And he goes on to say, because everyone has within him the soul of a king. Boy, isn't that the truth? 
don't tell me what to do. We're all, we're all toddlers at heart. We're all the three-year-old, right? I can do it, and I can do it my way. It's, all of this is so very counterintuitive, humility especially. Uh, it just rubs against our very nature. Uh, the, the Greco-Roman world in which these believers Peter is addressing lived, y'all, humility was despised. It was flatly rejected. Humility, that's for slaves. Humility, that's for the weak. Get that mess out of here. It's not appropriate for a citizen of this great empire. And so Peter, in this letter, is continually trying to remind these Christians, no, you're you're not citizens of this empire. You're aliens and strangers. You, uh, You need to live by the standards of a different king and a different kingdom. And, And to further think about the context here that Peter's writing to, He knows how vital this subjection and this humility is going to be. How mutual humility among all the parties is going to make or break the church. So so they're already so affected by so many external stressors. Right? They've got all these things from the outside. The hostility, the persecution... All of these threats from outside, the last thing they need is to add to that internal stressors. Hostility and division, turmoil from within. Matthew Henry said, humility is the great preserver of peace and order in the church. And pride is the great disturber of those things. Humility is the great preserver. Pride is the great disturber. And so Peter, knowing how important this all is for his readers, he doesn't want them for a minute to think, well, this is just something that he's come up with and that he's suggesting. And so we have at the end of verse 5 this quote, which is coming from Proverbs 3.34. This thing Peter's commanding has deep biblical roots and precedent. Right? It's just all over the place in Scripture. Again and again and again you see it repeated. And, and this that he quotes here from Proverbs exposes two options for Peter's readers. Two possibilities for whether they heed these biblical exhortations or not. Either clothe yourselves with humility or you're going to have God as your enemy. Clothe yourself with humility or God's going to oppose you. Yikes. Right? And again, it's not just this one verse. It's all over the place. The, the law, the prophets, Jesus himself reiterates the same thing in the Gospels. And it becomes pretty clear. Pride sets up a mutual opposition. The proud person is opposed to God in his heart. And God is opposed to the proud person in return. It is not a good setup. And yet, it's so tough, right? Pride is so sinister. Pride is so difficult because 
it's almost impossible for the proud person to see his pride. It's part of the definition of being proud. You just can't see it. To be subject to anyone and to be to be humble toward everyone is nearly impossible. And the stakes are so high. Right? Either we do it or we're going to have God as our enemy. And that, to any sane person, should be a terrifying thought. So, what are we to do? Well, if something doesn't come to us naturally, how does it have to come? Supernaturally. We're going to have to be changed. And that quote from Proverbs is actually giving us a clue there as to how it comes about. Because Peter doesn't give us any practical how-to instructions about, now here's how you clothe yourself with humility. He just says you've got to do it. But the clue gives us, gives us some idea here about how to go about being humble. First, he lists the terrible prospect of being God's enemy, him being opposed to us. But the flip side of that is that God gives grace to the humble. Grace has got to be involved here because what is grace? Well, grace is first unconditional acceptance. God accepts you when you come to him just the way you are. You don't have to get your act together before you come to God. You don't have to get yourself cleaned up before he will accept you. Grace says he accepts you unconditionally just the way you are. But grace is also transforming power. Yes, he accepts you just as you are, but in his grace, he doesn't leave you there. He changes you and transforms you. He gives grace to the humble. But wait a minute. I thought you said we couldn't be humble. Not naturally. Well, I guess that means God is going to have to make the first move then, isn't he? I'll let you in on a little secret. God always makes the first move. And if the scripture says that he gives grace to the humble, well then, he's going to have to give us a smidgen of grace just to get started. Some seed grace, if you will. To grant to us enough humility to cry out to him and say, I can't do it. I don't have it within me. Would you please help? I can't be humble. I know I need to be humble. I can't be humble. Would you please help? All you need is need to approach God. All you need is need, some sense of your need. See, we, we think, and I was thinking about this, this other hymn that we, that we sing. I think Joseph Hart wrote it, uh, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. There's a line in there that talks about, 
our, our fitness. We fondly dream of fitness. We fondly dream that, that one day we'll have our act cleaned up enough that we can go to God. And he'll accept us. He says, and he says, don't dream of fitness. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need for him. This he gives you. This he gives you. The only way that we can approach the Father is with our need. And he gives us the sense of that need. Because we don't have anything else to come to him with. Nothing to offer. No merit. No potentiality. Just need. And the scriptures are full of that. I, I love Isaiah 55, 1. It says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's how we have to come to him. There is no other way. He has to get us started with a gift of his grace, granting to us enough humility to say, I can't do this, you've got to help. And when he does that, we will find ourselves, rather than being God's enemies, we'll find ourselves then in this beautiful, perpetual cycle of grace. He gives grace to the humble, What's the grace that he gives us going to do? It's going to change and transform us. It's going to make us more humble. He's going to give us more grace. It's a beautiful, perpetual cycle. So that's the first clue about how this works. There are a couple more clues here about how we go about humbling ourselves, about how we go about clothing ourselves with humility. And the, the first is that we'll grow in humility if we get real. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Part of our humility will come from recognizing this mighty hand of God as we consider his power, his omnipotence. The reality of his power has a naturally humbling effect. He has to act on our behalf. Right? Uh, the, the mighty hand of God is such a, a striking image from Exodus as you read through and you, and you read about it. it was God's mighty hand that freed God's people from slavery in Egypt. It was God's mighty hand that got them through the Red Sea. It was God's mighty hand that closed the sea back on Pharaoh's army. For every iota of our existence, we are dependent upon the mighty hand of God. He created us. We didn't create ourselves. He, he rescued us. We didn't save ourselves. And all of these things lead us to a place of deep humility. What Peter is exhorting these believers to do, yes, it is contrary to their sinful fallen nature, but it is very much in line with the gospel that they have believed. Right. The, the, the church is by definition a gathering and a group of the humble. 
right? It's a group of those who have believed the humbling message of the gospel. Because if we come to Jesus as he's revealed in the gospel, we have to admit, I've got a big, huge problem that I cannot fix myself. I have no resources to address this problem. I am a sinner and a rebel standing before God, justly deserving his displeasure and his wrath. And I can't do anything to fix that. I need to be rescued. I need a substitute to live a righteous life in my place. I need a substitute to pay the punishment, to suffer the wrath that my sins justly deserve. That's the common starting point for all of us in the gospel. We are, by definition, a gathering of the humbled That's the starting point of the Christian life, and that is a point that is not to be departed from or moved on to something else, but to be continued in. And we do indeed have such a Savior, such a Rescuer, such a substitute who himself was willing to be humbled. He was willing to clothe himself with humility toward us and for us. And at the proper time, after his great humiliation and humbling of himself, the Father exalted him. With his mighty hand and to his mighty hand, where he rules and reigns today, guaranteeing that one day, at the proper time, we will be exalted with him. That's the promise there at the end of verse 6. If we're united with him in a death like his, we're also going to be united in exaltation with him, partaking of his glory. See, the gospel brings us low. If you're paying attention, the gospel brings you really, really low, forcing us to admit our need. But the gospel also lifts us to heights that we cannot imagine. There is this promise of being exalted with the Lord forever. To be the free recipients of grace like that, how can that not humble you? There's one more clue here to how this humbling of ourselves works. And this brings us back around to the beginning. The coffee mug verse, verse 7. Now, when I memorized this verse a long time ago, the way the NIV translates it, it translates it as if it were a command, right? Cast your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. Right? As if that were an imperative verb to get all geeky grammar on you. But if we want to handle God's word well, and I hope that we do, this isn't a command. This is not an imperative. This is another one of those pesky participles. Right? I've mentioned them before. Those are verbs that describe some other verb, some other action. The closest command, the imperative verb here, is the be humble, right? Is the the humble yourselves there at the beginning of six. Casting describes how we go about the humbling. 
And so this is what I found so interesting. In Peter's mind, there is some connection between humility on the one hand and casting anxieties on God on the other. So one way of humbling yourself is to cast your anxieties on the Lord. All right, so if that's true, the opposite's also true. One way to not humble yourself, one way to be proud, is to not cast your anxieties on the Lord. And so what's the opposite of casting? Holding on to. In humility, we cast our anxieties on him. In pride, we hold on to them. Thinking we can do something about it. We, thinking we can remedy the situation somehow. Now, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here and say that all anxiety is pride. But I think that Peter does definitely want us to consider the possibility and the reality that some anxiety is pride. Oftentimes. And I can definitely speak from from personal experience. Oftentimes, my anxiety is fear that God's not going to work something out the way that I have already decided he needs to work it out. Because I think I know what's best. And he just needs to get on board with my plan and everything will... Be just peachy. I think that the only possible good outcome of the situation is X, right? The the, the only good outcome for the biopsy is that it come back negative, right? The only good outcome from this interview is that it results in a job offer, that this relationship be restored, that there be enough money in the checking account to pay for the car repair, whatever the case is. I have figured out for myself, this is the only good outcome. But maybe he's got bigger fish to fry. Maybe he wants to do something totally different that I can't even fathom of. Maybe he wants to to blow the doors off of my tiny view of him and show me how much more faithful he is than I could ever imagine. Maybe he wants to show me a side of his faithfulness, of his love, of his goodness. Matthew Henry wrote lots on this verse that was just especially rich. He said, we've got to learn to cast our cares, and these were his exact words, on the wise and gracious providence of God. And I loved that. Casting our cares on the wise and gracious providence of God. He's wise. He knows what he's doing. He's gracious. It's for our good. We'll find, he goes on later, he says, we'll find that he either averts what we fear, that's what we really hope he'll do, or he supports us under it, which is what he often does.
when you pass through the waters. When you walk through the fire, I will be with you. Peter is suggesting there is a connection, there there is a correlation between trusting deeply in our Father and growing in humility. Friend, would would you cast your anxieties on your loving Father? This one who who cares for you? And, And not just your anxieties, but would you cast yourself, and I know many of you have, would you cast yourself into His loving arms to rescue you from your greatest and eternal need? And if you're willing to do that, then how can you not also cast yourself and your anxieties on Him for every lesser thing that you'll ever face in your life. Father, you have to get us started. You have to give us the grace to even be able to see our need. And you do that. You have to give us the grace of of enough humility to even cry out to you, that we're not humble and that we can't do it on our own. This He gives you. This He gives you. Oh Lord, thank You that You always make the first move. Always. That You loved us first. You didn't wait for us to search for you, but you came after us. Thank you that you always take the first move. Would you grant to us the humility even to confess that we're not humble and we can't humble ourselves without your help? Would you grant to us the humility to see the pride in some of our anxieties? And would you help us not to hold on to them, but to be humble enough to cast them on you? We can't bear the weight of those things, but you can and you willingly will. Thank you. Thank you for your grace that both accepts us and changes us. Would you do it now, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake.